0: Hello dear friends, welcome back to k 9360 360 on this 420 2022. And I suppose I should make some obvious comment or statement or joke or reference to the 420 um, since I've been hearing them all day long, right? On other kinds of media, social media, Radio, TV, it's everywhere. You know what we're talking about. You got your basketball Jones going on, depending on how old you are. And um, happy 420, right? To those who celebrate, how's that? So since we, uh, since I just made that reference to the Cheech and Chong movie, how about if we go all the way back to the 70s and pick up a little bit where we left off last week here on Canine 360, talking about how we know what we know with respect to what our dogs know and sometimes what they don't know. And most of the time, what we wish they knew and the challenge of trying to teach it to them. I know this cross species communication stuff is for the birds, as we could say. But here's what's been going on since the 1970s Generally, a rapid growth of the field of cognitive science. And that rapid growth has led to clashes about the relation between language and the physical reality that it supposedly represents. So maintaining that the body and the mind are inseparable, kind of overturning the old uh, Cartesian split, cognitive psychologists and linguists regard language as a product of the brain, a communication system reflecting bodily experiences. No more of that mind over matter stuff. It's all reflective of that integration. And because languages come from bodies, they rely on metaphors rooted in our physiological perceptions. So let me see if I can... Let's wade into the deep end on that. We will do that here in a minute. But uh, you've heard me say before here that, for example, the marketing mix from the big box pet supply stores has changed the conceptual metaphor that structures our understandings of and our relationship with dogs in this 21st century. The notion of owner replaced with pet parent, the physical being that is dog replaced by fur baby, a dog's education and training is de-emphasized and supplanted by the notion that dogs need doggy friends and play dates. And what falls out of this new description of the dog is not an enhanced understanding of all that dogs have been in the human family over the millennia. What falls out is a shopping list because the corporation insists on it. And at the top of that shopping list are two things dogs have never needed. Clothing, fun as it may be, and daycare, right? But the goal of the corporation is to show profit for shareholders so they drive us back into the store for more stuff and um, being able to talk about this in the way that we're able to talk about it here on k 9360 is one of the things I think I appreciate the most about community radio because that is not the conversation on those commercial stations that are supported by those big box pet supply stores. Okay, so here's the idea bodies don't create languages, but languages create bodies. So when cognitive psychologists argue that languages reveal bodily origins, linguists claim language and culture teach people how to experience their bodies, and there's no universally comprehensible human body that's unmediated by language. I saw that commercial last night about Paris Hilton's wedding coming up. (laughs) yikes Um, or even George Bernard Shaw's character remember Henry Higgins from Pygmalion he expresses one version of that idea when he says you have no idea how frightfully interesting it is to take a human being and change her into a quite different human being by creating a new speech for her by altering language of course Henry Higgins hopes he can shape thoughts not so much, maybe poor Eliza Doolittle, so much as the thoughts of those who hear her speak. Right? Among the influential thinkers arguing that these bodily experiences shape language are George Lakoff and the philosopher Mark Johnson. See, so this is kind of a continuation of what we talked about last week. They wrote a book called Metaphors We Live By, and propose that expressions describing one concept in terms of another reveal essential aspects of the way people think. So in English, we have words, phrases, that associate um, life and health with up, and death and sickness with down. Maybe because a healthy person stands upright, where a sick one has to lie down. They're quick to qualify. They note that it's hard to distinguish the physical from the cultural basis of a metaphor. But we experience our world in such a way that our culture is already present in the experience itself. In another book, they talk a little bit about how our conceptual systems draw on the commonalities of both our physical bodies and the physical environments that we live in. And culture influences people's understandings of their experience. We believe in the common elements of linguistic expression and see how they're grounded. Think about how we talk about dogs, right? Think about um, how we use language to create and affirm our connections to them and how many different words we have to describe them, right? We have as many words to describe dogs as that suggestion that that folks who live in northern climates have a lot of words to talk about snow but let's talk for a minute about how we build i mean what value is all of this sophisticated understanding about how language works if we can't use it strategically to help ourselves learn how our dogs learn (coughs) excuse me and how better to teach them Right? Or the role of language in doing all of that. Because whether we know it or not, people deliver information to dogs in two ways. We deliver it verbally by, by creating a behavior and then through repetition and association, a dog can come to comprehend a word behavior pairing. That's really what sit is, right? Here's this thing you do and here's what we call it, or here's how we cue it, which is probably more um, more honest, right? The dog doesn't care what it's called, he just hears the cue and responds in ways that we think are acceptable. But we also deliver information to our dogs by how we behave through our body language. And since that's the natural language of dogs, if we want to extend language to incorporate that sort of communicative dynamic. Since body language is the natural language of dogs, it's far more powerful than mere words, human words. Of course, this means you have to pay more attention to what you do than what you say. And it also means that we have to stop talking all the time. That's hard for humans. But if we teach a dog to remain alert, for a barely detectable nonverbal signal we inevitably teach the dog to focus on us a great deal for information that we might say we all learned as the essence of pack leadership from that guy caesar milan when he was once on tv but if if you can harness that that dimension of the canine brain that wants to create cooperation, collaboration, appeasement as part of the group. If you can tap into that, your typical dog behavior problems will melt away. No kidding. So to think about what language can and can't do, um, here's a little story. Uh, Long ago, a student of mine had recently finished an obedience title on one of his standard poodles. And he was out walking his dog in the neighborhood. Um, His dogs, he had more than one, I guess. And he encountered another neighbor who was walking her dog. And she actually blocked him on the sidewalk, very, very eager to tell him that her kind of scruffy, matted, tangled, yellow mess of a dog was a Labradoodle and how much they just loved him. She said, we got this dog because my son is allergic and this is a breed that doesn't shed. Well, my student, the fellow with the standard poodle, was not in the mood for what he called the conversation. So he simply replied, ah, so you got a dog that doesn't shed. And the woman said, You know, he really doesn't. Now, he does leave large clumps of yellow hair all around the house. But he doesn't shed. (laughs) So that might suggest something to us about the, the limits of language or the limits of our understanding or both, right? He does leave large clumps of hair all around the house, but he doesn't shed. You know, in class, I sometimes ask, uh, what does a trained dog look like? And one way of answering that question is to ponder whether the dog was truly trained if he will only work for his owner. It's fair to say that nearly anyone could show up on my doorstep and demand sit, or down of my dogs and and get them, but they will not necessarily be the same sit and down that I get. In fact, when we talk about sit and down, I'm not sure we're talking about the same thing. Not at all. Like shedding. If you live with a dog and the dog spends a majority of her time in the house with you, you need some sort of functional command, that allows you to direct the dog's position and her behavior. These functional commands generally include some kind of recall, some sort of stationary command like sit or lie down, some way to get the dog to walk where you want her to go. Loose leash walking fills that need admirably. Typically, dog owners need and want this stuff pretty quickly. Generally, they want it faster then careful adherence to a coherent training method will provide. So initially we can engineer quick responses to tricks, sit, lie down, to help us, to help us feel like we're making progress. Nothing succeeds like success, right? I also imagine because I've met them that many people are perfectly happy with this level of sit and down taught to puppies as tricks. But people with the hearts and minds of trainers will want to acknowledge another dimension of sit and down. This level of command and compliance comes with the development of a mutually respectful and mutually comprehending relationship. The kind that both dog and handler understand as part of a larger picture. A picture in which both do their respective parts, not for a cookie, or to avoid a correction, but because it's what they do. Trust is a big part of this working relationship. When I ask my dog to ignore her environment and pay sole attention to me, I ask her to trust that I'll watch where we're going and that I'll take care not to let another dog bother her. I don't take that kind of trust lightly and I endeavor to be worthy of that trust. I think it's something worth having. And you don't get that level of compliance just by showing up on someone's doorstep and demanding it. Demanding it of the wrong dog at the wrong time can engender a range of responses from the dog, from pointless to rude to downright dangerous. But those two dimensions of training start out as separate and distinct ways of working with your dog, though the two can eventually merge. We start pups when they're young with the first kind. Lots of cookies, right? So we can have some way to direct and begin to control their behavior. But you gotta keep going. Teaching tricks isn't enough. You gotta go beyond sit and down. Basically because, well, just because Bailey's butt is sitting, he may not be sitting in his mind. His mind might be wandering across the room to start trouble with another dog. His mind might be jumping on a visitor or it's numb in a vacant anticipation of a cookie. He doesn't know or care that he is sitting. Our job is to give him meaning. Meaning is use if you remember where we started at the top of the program last week. Right, Our job is to give him meaning. There's a presumption of generalizability that if we just teach in the living room, we can generalize that training to anywhere. But neither dog training nor writing skills generalize across context. I, thinking about that always puts me in mind of a lovely article I read many, many years ago by a rhetorician named David Russell, who said that believing you can teach writing in a general writing course and that students will be able to generalize that writing skill across all communicative contexts is a little bit like believing that you can improve somebody's ping pong game, their soccer game, their golf game, their volleyball game, and their football game by offering them a course in general ball handling. He was right about that with respect to uh, meaning is use, everything is context. And it's not just for us as we're using language. It's also important to keep in mind when we are training the dog, right? Donald McCaig, we've talked about him before. Donald was another writer given to a little bit of philosophizing now and then. We lost him too soon, lost Vicki Hearn too soon, and lost Donald McCaig too soon. And somebody asked him once, what are we really giving our dogs when we teach solid off-leash work? And by that, I don't mean e-collar work. I mean real off-leash training. And McKaig responded, fitness. And he was talking about physical and mental fitness. Where training is the operative word in the phrase off-leash training. Why is that important? oh, we live out here in the big square states in the middle where there's an extraordinary mythology of dogs need room to run. It's a pretty significant superstition, more a bit of nostalgia or sentimentality in this part of the world, one that leads all too often to dead dogs. In my experience, this single phrase has become the rationale for a great many misunderstandings turned failures on the part of dog owners, including, but in no way limited to, not training the dog at all, not managing the dog, harboring a dangerous dog, the pervasive and persistent use of those retractable flexi leashes, a continued practice of just dropping dogs off in the country and driving away, uh, of excusing their chasing of livestock or small children, or harmless middle aged joggers like me. I have heard it invoked as a synecdoche for the whole of the country dog's mythos as the reason why the dog is riding loose in the back of a pickup truck going 85 miles an hour down I-80. Dogs need room to run is tangentially connected to the reason or the explanation for why crates are quote cruel or for why we allow the three-month-old puppy full run of the house while we're at work for eight hours a day, and then rationalize the invasive and expensive surgery required to move bottle caps or Jackie shorts from his intestinal tract. I had an owner invoke it as the reason for why the Dalmatian had to be redeemed at least once a week from either a kennel at the shelter having been picked up by the sheriff's office or a kennel at the veterinary clinic having having been picked up by the sheriff and determined to be injured. Does it matter that 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 Dalmatian's owner had a PhD in behavioral psychology doing a residency in forensics? It didn't matter to that dog because it made no appreciable difference for him. I think if I could expunge or exercise one single psychological or linguistic or conceptual frame from the brains of some of the folks who come to our classes for training, it would be that notion that dogs need room to run. Turning a dog loose is no more an automatic guarantee of either physical or mental fitness than is just installing the treadmill or the elliptical machine in our basement, right? Just having it there doesn't mean we're going to use it properly or make proper use of it or take full advantage. Training is what makes it so. Formal training in the sense that commands or exercises have form, clear beginnings, middles, and ends, and that they require physical and mental discipline from us and from our dogs. I suppose some of that makes me sound a little crabby maybe, because I got chased again yesterday by a loose dog, a young dog who followed me for about a mile and a half, followed me and my dog, for about a mile and a half before I was able, able to catch a hold of him. Meanwhile, to get back to my house, I had to cross several busy streets while he darted and dodged in and out of traffic, and morning commuters shook their fists and honked at me because they assumed that I was letting my dog play chicken in traffic while they're simply trying to get to work. My supposed to be relaxing run with my dog was ruined. I was scared to death that this young dog, this basically adolescent puppy, was gonna get hit and killed right in front of my eyes. And by the time I got back to my van, coaxed him up with cookies and called the phone number and the tag I was most decidedly not feeling the effects, the calming effects of my endorphin release, right? My runner's high. You wanna guess what the owner said when she came to get her dog? Referencing why he was let out the front door instead of into the fenced backyard. If you guessed he needs room to run. Then you can probably also hear my silent screaming, right? <laughs> Poor dog, goodness sakes. And don't tell me I need to give this woman my card. I'm not in the mood, right? Uh, no, no, no. Um, no, 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 and no. All right, we have arrived together again at the end of another bit of time together here on K9 360, right? And thanks for hanging in there with me while I get a little bit abstract. I try not to do that very often, even though um, my brain tends to want to take me there. Um, but for those of you who are willing to appreciate or indulge that, I am grateful for your companionship as we uh, dig a little deeper into some of this stuff, maybe understand a little bit more about ourselves. um, And in doing that, understand a little bit more about how we interact well with our dog, right? dogs are like like creative writing students some folks say my dog has a writing block no way a training block he can only work in the right circumstances he must have his hot dog before he can fetch if i move his water bowl it breaks his concentration and he can't work for a week right oh uh, if only if only We'll hopefully able to get out a little bit um, as these uh, spring flowers push up. They're all over the place where we live and uh, maybe in your house, around your house too. Get the dogs out. Be safe out there. The um, robins are a sign of spring but dogs off leash running around are a sign of spring as well. So we wanna keep everybody safe and productive in the neighborhood and come around back next week and hang out with us here on K9 360 on KZUM for now you can stick around and get into the celebration because that's what's up next and always remember always 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 remember how grateful we are for you for your presence for your listening ear for your Affection for this station and its volunteer programmers and its amazing staff, and know that we love you right back. All right, thanks so much, guys. I will see you around the corner a week from today, right here on K nine three sixty KZUM, the coolest radio station in the world. Take care. Be safe.